Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. You've arrived at the second part of a two-week exploration of the East End, or Whitechapel in particular. And it's the nature of these things that the walk doesn't sound nearly as exciting if you just describe the buildings that you stopped outside. It is your host who brings the special pair of eyes with them. In this case, my host was, and again, is Rachel Kolsky. If you're a stickler for sequence, I'd strongly advise you go back and listen to part one first. And if you've just done that, I hope you enjoyed it. Welcome back. Rachel and her colleague Louis Burke have written and photographed a wonderful book about Whitechapel, Whitechapel in 50 buildings. And the Whitechapel building we're starting with in this second instalment is, well, I guess it must be the biggest one for quite some way around. Uh, yes, Rachel Kolsky is about to put me in hospital. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a strong throw from your front door. The London Hospital was their, was their landlord. So helping to fund itself? Absolutely, absolutely. And some of the little streets on the other side. So we're now walking back. So we're now walking back towards the city. You know what I mean? Back towards, you know, sort of westwards. Um, some of the little streets still survive uh, with a few, few of the houses as well. But when we go inside, there's a couple of things I want to show you, which is sort of between the, the front of the building and the new back building. A few things. And then I'll take you through the hospital and then you can get see very clearly what's left of the original buildings it's it's quite an amazing sight and it's one of these sites that one has to see now because it's going to change obviously quite quite radically as we approach the hospital a shout out to the air ambulance team up there doing fantastic work for london yes because you can see up above over to your left hand side the heliport which is the new heliport the original heliport was was further to whitechapel road it's very noisy. If a helicopter comes in and out, it's amazingly noisy. And the wind, you know, the, 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 the movement of air is quite, quite phenomenal. So it serves uh, the area within the M25. And usually the helicopter will bring people back here. Obviously, they've got, a, you know, an emergency theatre at the top. But sometimes they might take the injured person to um, a specialist hospital, if need be. 
I think I saw in the news just this week, or was it last week, that a hospital somewhere else in England has got their uh, helicopter emergency service. I think it's like the third one or something. Don't quote me on the on the exact number, but there's a, a few more now dotted around. The, around. the amazing thing, of course, and, and the misconception often is that they are all about transporting the patients to hospital, and that's their sole function but actually it's it's much more about being able to do surgery at the roadside and, and provide that specialist care for trauma that's right because um sometimes people are injured or or, or, or something you know, become ill in an area where an ambulance can't get to so the helicopter will go to place will go to places basically that ambulances can't reach so often in the middle of um parks you know where there's no roadways things like that well, I, I was talking to one of the pilots there and he was describing some of the circumstances in which the air ambulance might be called upon. And a fairly typical one is in the middle of a, a, a gang fight where one of the participants has been seriously injured oh, yeah. and the, the chopper not only has to deal with the health of the, the injured person but they've also got to you know, deal with the, the, the other people around. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, uh, it is amazing work. It is amazing work that they do. Actually, what we've done now, we've actually come to the spot where you can see very closely the um the old and the new we're passing the uh, we're passing the entrance to accident and emergency yeah but we're walking past it aren't we lucky so so what you can see over to your right hand side is the back of what i call the Whitechapel road frontage and it's not so long ago so for instance um you'd come out of Whitechapel tube that we couldn't do this morning you'd walk straight across the street with all the people in their slings and their casts and then you'd go um up the stairs into the main entrance it was really quite amazing because in the entrance was the emergency bell and the emergency bell which was found which was made at the Whitechapel bell foundry was rung uh, to alert staff that there was an emergency coming coming in and then you'd walk through the vestibule and then you'd come out and can you see there's like a little porch with a little green roof oh yes yeah and so you'd come out there and where that porch came out was a small courtyard uh, where there was a garden there was benches and that's where patients and visitors could could sit those buildings have seen better days yes the buildings have seen better days but the frontage is hopefully going to stay because those old buildings um, have been purchased by the Londonborough Tower Hamlets and they're going to ref- the, the, the story at the moment is they're going to be refurbished into the new uh, Tower Hamlets Town Hall and I think the frontage to be retained for me is very important yeah. because it's part you know it's one of the buildings that's been here the longest it's, you know the hospital came here to Whitechapel in 1753 it been founded in 1740 it's so important and the other thing I find about Whitechapel Hospital, Royal London, I should call it, is um, people have a great fondness for it, you know, and even if people have lost members of their family here, it does happen, there's a fondness for this hospital in a way that I never really hear anybody talk about hospitals. There are other local hospitals. Um, it sort of grew because it was here before the area really developed and it's developed with, with the communities. So as the area became more Jewish, and we're talking about in the um, early to mid-1800s, before the Jewish East End, as I say, you know, they, the hospital started providing kosher food facilities, special visitation rights, you know, things linked to the Sabbath, etc., etc. So it's always embraced the community um, around it and if you actually just loiter 
here as one does on a general day when you've got nothing to do you loiter in a hospital and looking the demographic here is absolutely amazing so today it's predominantly Bengali but actually often you'll see if you're here on a weekday uh, members of the ultra-orthodox uh, Jewish community who may be you know because Hackney is not so far away there's a big Jewish community in Hackney and although there's big Homerton Hospital in Hackney some members of that community will be here at the Royal, Royal London so you see the whole world here actually go go by but I think the the importance of that frontage and you know it's been there since the middle of the 18th, 18th century how can you take it away mm. from Whitechapel Whitechapel Road. Yes, quite um, right. When you used to come into that little courtyard, there was one of my favourite statues in London. And obviously, the statue isn't there anymore, but they've repositioned the statue. So what we're going to do, we're going to walk through uh, the the, um, the hospital, we're going to come out the other side, and then you'll see where they, they put the statue. And if we come out with a plaster cast on our legs, we'll know we walk <laughs> through the wrong department. Yes. <laughs> But I know that estate agents look at this side of the Whitechapel Road as being the, the last uh, vaguely affordable place to be. Yes, there's an, ele- there's an element of tr- truth in that. I think pockets of Bethnal Green as well are still ripe for, for redevelopment. But that also is what's so amazing about the East End, is that you, know, you can see something glitzy and modernised and renovated and you know, uber-trendy, but literally turn down another street. And you, you're absolutely right, it's... Um, it's still right for redevelopment. I mean, if you go down... We're not now far from the Commercial Road. Commercial Road is, like, parallel to Whitechapel Road. And if you go down Commercial Road, just walk down Commercial Road, it's... it's, it's I think you're right. It's very ripe for a little bit of sprucing, sprucing up. But it does have a bath... It's actually very funny. It does actually have a bath store on the Commercial Road up towards the Yorkgate. And, but it lists itself as the bath store Canary Wharf branch. And I, and I went in there one day. Oh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to uh, record in a revolving door. This is a bold enterprise. We mustn't touch the glass. OK. Good. Oh, I might be going around again. No, I've escaped. And I thought that was rather amusing because they didn't want to say it was Commercial Road <laughs> Branch or, or Whitechapel Branch. And one of, the, one of the lovely things, we're walking down the corridor here um, and you can see this sign, Vital Arts. And basically this corridor, which takes us through to the southern side of the hospital, is, is, an, is an art gallery. It's an art gallery and they have a changing... Um, pieces of artwork, sometimes linked to a theme. Um, otherwise, just very, very talented artists having the opportunity to have their work shown to literally thousands of thousands of people, which, you know, where else could you have that opportunity? And often the pieces are for sale as well. So. There's some very good stuff here. It's, it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. It's almost worth suffering a life-threatening disease. Oh, but yes. Or, or just better... Please don't suffer. Just come and visit the art. Is that what they mean when they say you need to suffer for your art? No. Now we come into a rear foyer. Yeah, and another big revolving door. Please don't touch the glass. being revolved out onto... Ah, here's the, this must be the statue you were talking about. right, yeah, and then we're just going to cross the road. Well, a little bit of description will pay dividends here. Off to our right, in the far distance we can see the Natwest building and the Gherkin looming over the streetscape. Nearer to, there's a red brick church in a Gothic style. Uh, some brown brick buildings over the far side of what looks to be a cleared NHS-owned building site. Absolutely. Uh, above us many stories high is the blue glass of the hospital itself and 
to our left. It's sort of like um, a covered area, from a, like a port crochet. Sort of like you can walk from one building to another without getting wet. And uh, ahead of us, that looks like Queen Alex. It is indeed one of my favourite sculptures, or statues, I should say, in London. Let's go and have a closer look. No green man to guide us. No, just each other. <clears throat> vaguely romantic. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you're in Whitechapel, isn't it? Don't you consider it to be one of the most romantic places in London? Well, now you're putting me on the spot. I'll do, I... do a London show. <laughs> Let's divert quickly to Queen Alexandra. Queen Alexandra. And I love this statue. So for those of you that haven't seen her... I'm in in so much trouble with the East Ham people now. If I say yes to this being one of the most romantic spots in London, the East Ham people are going to be all over me. Why? They don't like me not saying good things about East Ham. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe they won't listen to this podcast and they won't hear. Their tentacles are everywhere. We're whispering so they won't hear us. Should we, should we balance it by saying something good about East Ham? Yes, what would you like to say? I don't, I don't know, you're the tour guide. <laughs> Do you know anything about East Ham? Mm, I haven't been there for a little while, actually. Oh, this isn't looking good. There's that beautiful little church of St Mary Magdalena. It's absolutely so atmospheric with a little churchyard. They're right by the A13. It's a delightful spot. Are you being sarcastic? Never. OK. Green Alexandra. So there's this, it's a, a, a quite a tall plinth that curves out at the bottom level so it turns into seating for people so you can sit at her base. And then the statue of Queen Alexandra, I just love it because she's tall, she's imperious, she's wearing a beautiful dress with lots and lots of pearls around her bodice. And then she's got this big, tall um, choker around her neck, which is really very much what she was famous for. Um, I read that she actually had an accident when she was younger and maybe there was a scar on her neck so that's why she always had lots of rows of pearls to to hide it. And Alexandra um, became Princess Alexandra when she married um, the Prince of Wales, who was later going to become Edward VII. And I think to date she's our longest-standing ever uh, Princess of Wales. Uh, If Princess Diana had lived, she might have... gained that sort of that, that, that accolade and in many respects people often have um, see a parallel between Alexandra and Diana in the sense that uh, married the Prince of Wales had her children very quickly um, became a model mother a fashion icon you know a media star uh, photographs, postcards made of Alexandra were sold in their thousands you know to women particularly with her with her children that sort of thing and then of course the um, the marriage wasn't a particularly uh, happy one, although in this instance the, the marriage did, did last. And what Alexandra did, as well as being the perfect fashion plate, the perfect mother, she involved herself with a lot of charitable work. And, you know, it's worth remembering that, you know, she was Princess of Wales from the early 1860s, and right from the word go, she, she was, you know, coming to the East End, supporting particularly nursing and medical um, uh, initiatives. She had a wing ward here named after her, then a wing named after her. And then you can see she was president of the London Hospital in 1904. But also in 1899, she was Danish and she knew of the work being done in Denmark by Dr. Finson. And so she um, funded or helped fund encouraged the first Finson lamp in Britain to be brought over to to here at the London Hospital. So here you were in the impoverished East End, but this new medical initiative came here. And just around the back of the statue... Oh, which, uh, there's a, there's imp- a, important a, to note, though, that what, what the Finson light, the lamp yes, does. Yes, I'll show you. I'll show you. Oh, OK. Around. 
we're going around the back of the uh, of the statue. And here you have Princess Alexandra Relief here. Um, Princess Alexandra leaning over an ill person with the um, um, uh, the Prince of Wales behind her, looking on attentively. He's taking, his, he's taking his hat off. He's taking his hat off. It's very feathery, it's, and he's holding it very feathery. And then in the background is this sort of, how would you describe it? Like a tube, it's like a, a, a drum. At the top is sort of metal, and then it's got sort of a curtain um, below it with sort of telescopic things coming out. And this is the Finson lamp, and it was a light treatment for something called lupus. Lupus is um, uh, sort of a condition where, you know, you, you can't, your immune system break, breaks down. But it still happens every so often. You know, you'll read in the papers, you know, you might read about somebody that's suffering from lupus. It still exists today. And, and they um, still put them under a lamp. Yes, but it's not, um, it doesn't look like this anymore, but it's still a form of light treatment. Um, and uh, Dr. Finson was awarded a Nobel Prize for medicine a few years later. So, uh, you know, there's, there's um, she... We're standing, this statue has been re- recited, and it's just outside an entrance called the Cavell Entrance. And of course, here at the uh, London Hospital, you had lots of women who, who had an impact in different ways. Edith Cavell, probably famous for being the brave nurse um, who was executed in 1915 during the, during the First World War. And she trained here at the London Hospital. And if you, where you saw the hoardings on the front on Whitechapel Road, there's a, a there's some little breaks, little gaps, and if you peek through the gap, you can see the blue plaque to Edith Cavell, which is still there on the frontage, um, saying that she that she trained here. And um, Edith Cavell has a statue. If you know the West End of London, say Martins Lane near the Coliseum and near the National Portrait Gallery, etc., there's a statue to Edith Cavell, and it was Alexandra that unveiled it. So w- one of the things for me about London is that you, wherever you go, you can actually make links where you're when you're least expecting them and for me that's the glory of london that you know you've been here you've been there you see this you see that and everything we jigsaw together and just around the corner is an entrance called the luke's entrance and that's named after a woman called eva luke's who was matron here for 30 for 39 years uh, yeah she died at her desk uh, uh, apparently and i met somebody who told me because you know, she devoted herself to her nurses and, and her, but um I often think maybe power does go to people's head because I met somebody who said that one of her ancestors had worked here as a nurse and one of her jobs was to wash the sovereigns for, for matron Luke's before she would handle them. So I love this idea that you know, one of the roles, she always got somebody, I'm not handling that dirty sovereign, it must be cleaned for me. Well, but, yeah, I mean, it kind of <laughs> makes sense because in most hospitals you visit, they've got those dispensers of stuff that you're supposed to put on your hands. You're right, you're she right. She probably onto no, something. She was probably just ahead of her time. And in fact, Eva Lux was ahead of her time, you know, continuous pro- um, professional development for the nurses, that, that sort of thing. She made sure that the, the doctors and the surgeons kept the nurses up to date with new you know, medical initiatives. So, um, yeah, so here, just standing here, you've got this wonderful triumvirate of, of nurses. And uh, Eva Lux had this uh, building open for a training school for nurses down the road at Mile End. And um, and Alexandra opened that. So again, they're all they're all linked. Everywhere, they're all linked in in one way or another. I'd like to put you on the spot, Rachel Kolsky. Oh no, not again! Yeah, who would you like to see a, a, a statue to with a, uh, somebody more contemporary who perhaps has the same kind of vibe as some of these people we're talking about? Who deserves oh, here, a statue here at the London Hospital? Mm. More contemporary. You have put me on the spot. What I'm getting at is, are there people around today who are doing things? 
that you would like to see recognised or better recognised? I mean, there's a lot of research. There's a lot of res- uh, people doing research here, and I apologise. I don't know their individual names, but yes, absolutely. Uh, there are medical people here making people better, but there's a lot of research going on as as well. There's a lot of people working here with cancer research. Mm. Um, I, I, I know. Um, well, that's the thing. Without the without the statue or the ward named after, and their name uh, can disappear, well, can't it? We need names. Yeah. Um, I mean, years ago, the wards were typically named after the benefactors. I mean, that was how you got your. That's how you got your name in a hospital if you if you gave some money. But the thing about the thing about naming and statues and plaques and things is it typically happens when you're dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so we shouldn't really be wishing this on anybody. N- not at not no. at the moment. Not at the moment. You know. Although I have to say, although why it's been like that, who knows? Why shouldn't plaques be put up? Um, and, and actually, increasingly, there 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 are there are some organisations. So if you go down to Rotherhithe, for instance. Rotherhithe District, Bermondsey. There's a plaque there to the birthplace of Michael Caine, for instance, the the, um, the actor and film star Michael Caine. Well, he's well and truly alive, and he already has a plaque. I, I often get very sad when I read obituaries. Why reserve all of those positive thoughts and uh, fond memories for after somebody's gone? Why not tell them how you feel about them when they're still around? Absolutely. I do often. I do often wonder the same. The same thing because they say the dead can't defend. The dead can't defend themselves. You know. So so that means you've got. Um, <laughs> you can you can say rotten things about somebody who's who's living. The other thing is, of course. Um, you know, you often don't know until somebody's gone how their legacy and name lives on. You know, but to be honest, there are lots of people doing lots of wonderful things at the moment and they will probably be commemorated in time to come. We've uh, arrived at a little spot here where you could convince yourself you're somewhere other than Whitechapel because the architecture doesn't, to me, seem readily to suggest it. We've got the arches of that gothic church that I mentioned there's a very smart looking building called the Good Samaritan which uh, looks like a, a plush pub to my favourite building when Louis and I were doing the book and we were choosing oh, oh look at this yes <laughs> when we were doing the putting together our buildings the list of buildings you know we actually it was quite amazing we, we each drew up a list of buildings and amazingly they matched almost entirely we only had to debate a couple and then we we sort of just you know said to each other go on name your favorite building which and both of us chose exactly the same building and it's this building that I've just brought um, in to see. It's um, called Gwyn House. And you come upon it. It was built in, I think, 1934. And you come upon it. It's like an ocean liner from the 1930s that sort of come adrift and has ended up, you know, in dry dock in, in, in Whitechapel. And there's just something absolutely lovely. I mentioned just before how fond I am of 1930s um, architecture. And this is it incarnate. And when I say it's quite rare. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Is it? reminiscent of an ocean liner there are some sort of nautical motifs linked to it so if you look at the front doors they've all got portholes for windows and it's got this wonderful very 1930s typical 1930s I suppose in many ways you call it a fly tower if you think of a beautiful Ogean cinema from the 1930s where you have the name Ogean you know vertically written and you've got Gwyn House here vertically written down the, the fly tower you've got a lovely little um, the windows on this stairwell they they go up at an angle like like at a 45 degree angle it's the detailing that's really lovely and it was built by the London Hospital Estate for workers for doctors uh, and whatever and it's just recently um outside there are three Foxtons placards um just literally a few years ago it was sold off and now the flats are in private ownership and to be honest you know the location is just absolutely phenomenal you can you know, you can literally roll out of bed and go into Whitechapel Station, which means that you're only... dangerous. It does sound a bit dangerous. Um, but it means you're literally just a few minutes away if you work in the city or the, or the Docklands. It really... It's really, really beautiful. And I, I did a lecture a few... A month or so ago. It doesn't matter what the lecture was about, but the book had just been released. I just wanted to tell everybody listening to the lecture about the new book, because if you don't, if you don't tell anybody, who will? So I just put three little pictures up, and then I did my lecture, which is actually all about portraits in the National Portrait Gallery. And a lady came up to me at the end I said, Rachel, thank you. That was a lovely lecture. Uh, but what was the picture at the beginning? You know, the one of the house. You know, and I'm thinking uh, towards the you know towards the beginning of the lecture, and I'm thinking, but it was all about people. It was all about portraits. I said, oh no, no, I, I didn't talk about buildings. It was it was all about portraits and people. She says, no, no, no. You showed us a picture of, of some buildings, and then I realised she was talking about not about my lecture at all, but about my bit about the book, and she'd noticed the picture of Gwyn House. And she said there was a picture of a block of flats and I couldn't remember the name. She said, I just couldn't remember the name. Um, and it, I spent the whole of the lecture trying to remember the name of the building. I said it was Gwyn House. She said, that's right. She said, I started my married life there. And it was so wonderful because I put it in as a random picture, you know, because it's my favourite building of the book. And, and that's the glory of what one does if you explore London and talk to people. You never know when a memory a random memory is going to come through and it sort of made her, made her evening and, that, and subsequently made my evening as, as well. Started her married life. Yes, isn't that lovely? So she, uh, you know, in that building. In that building. <laughs> and she hadn't, she hadn't thought about it for decades. She hadn't been here for decades. I was, I, it, it made me feel very happy. It made me happy. So I think also what I love about Gwyn House here is it just takes you by surprise. You know, we're on a... Um, a road called Fieldgate Street. And as we go down towards uh, the end of Fieldgate Street, for me, this street, if you don't look at the modern hospital buildings, 
this street still has the look and feel of what we think of as the old white chapel from not so not so long ago. And, um, and I then... don't know. I disagree with you. Oh, uh, really, okay. this, this is from where I'm standing. I can see every architectural style that man has ever conceived. Oh, actually, I suppose, yes, yeah, yeah. So yes, so you've got um, the early 21st century um, uh, London Hospital buildings, the late 19th century church, 1934 Gwyn House. Um, you've got lots of additions still to the London Hospital. And as we walk down, well, we've got the 80s scrapers down there. We're missing that glass fellow just next to Gwyn House. There's a, a, a whole building made out of glass. Oh, Rachel's off. Rachel's off. Where's she going? She thinks it's part of the hospital. My feet have gone. Where are they going? I don't know. They've definitely gone. This is part of the hospital too, but I can't remember what bit. I can see the sign. Yeah, let's cross the road carefully. Centre of the cell is stenciled on one of the windows. I seem to remember this being some sort of sort of researchy, microscopy, yeah, educationy type thing. Yeah. It says St Bart's and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry. The Blizzard the Building. Blizzard Building. Institute of Cell and Molecular Science. Let's walk down Fieldgate Street. Now we've seen the big modern buildings. In the distance, you can see the Gherkin and the Cheese Grater. Ooh. All our lovely food-related buildings. I've noticed in the City of London that things have to be named after food. Yeah, they're making a sandwich, aren't they? They are making a sandwich, a financial sandwich. Because you've got the prawn as well, don't forget. The prawn? Yeah, the prawn. I don't know about the prawn. Oh, the prawn. Where's the prawn? Is, um, the prawn is... Do you know Lloyd's of London building? Yeah. And um, on one side of Lloyd's of London, you've got the cheese grater. And then you've got a building called the Willis Building. And it's, uh, and it's been nicknamed the prawn. Because the way the, the bits at the top, they're all set back. Sort of um, like one, two, three. Sort of overlapping. In a way, in the same way that the, you know, the uh, shells of a crustacea overlap. I don't know if I've described that very well. I'm going to have to go and have a look at it now. Yeah, have a look at it. And when you look at it, you might think it looks a bit like a prawn. Most people don't. But that's what it's been nicknamed. I've never walked past a building and thought, by Joe, that looks like a prawn. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you have to look up. I'm very, look up. I'm very fond of the Lloyds building. Oh, the Lloyd's building's fantastic. It's like a spinal column, isn't it? Yeah, it's, fan- it's, it's, it's brilliant. The, um, and when I think of when it opened, it was, it was deemed so futuristic, you know, and so many people thoroughly disliked it. And, of course, now it looks sort of small and homely, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it, re- it's, it's it really reminds really me a little bit of the... Uh, who's the robot in Metropolis? Oh, who's the robot the in Metropolis? The name of the robot in Metropolis? Yes, for ten points. That's a, no, that's a, serious, that's a serious film question. I fail on that one. But it, it, Fritz but Lang. It, yeah, I, I yeah. Could have told you it was Fritz Lang. Well, who's the robot? And that wasn't the answer to the question. Couldn't you ask me a question to which the answer is Fritz Lang? Yeah, just a second. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you look at the Lloyds building, it's curvy. It's got it's round, there's roundness to it. Whereas, of course, the buildings around it now are a little bit more angular. Mm. You know, so that's why it looks, it looks cosier. So we're just going to be walking down Fieldgate Street. Over to your right is a building that looks like it's empty now and ripe for redevelopment, also part of the Royal London Hospital. But I just love these external spiral staircases. It's just absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. I love all the old windows as well. I was at my primary school at the weekend. It was built in 1936, and... um, They've had a commemorative day for all old students to come uh, because it's going to be demolished and new buildings are going to be built. And it's the most beautiful, perfect 
1930s building with you know but they just say it's not energy efficient anymore and it has too many little staircases up and down produced a lot of appalling people <laughs> better rip it down no it's a beautiful it's a it's a gorgeous building and a lot of us went and we all got quite tearful at the end remembering our very happy our happy days at Priestmead Primary School. Where, whereabouts is this? It's in, in Kenton, in Harrow, in Middlesex. Uh-huh. Very, very happy days. But it's just this notion of the buildings that are, are so lovely, but they're just not suitable for 21st century life anymore. So here we are on Fieldgate Street, and it's not so long ago, coming up to the, um, to the western end of Fieldgate Street, that it, this area, this little street, was very down at heel, very, very down at heel. I remember when there was only one Tyabs here, and now if you look across to your right-hand side, you can see Tyabs has taken over three buildings. <laughs> and um, if you like sort of like good old-fashioned Punjabi cuisine, it says there proudly, traditional uh, Punjabi cuisine since 1972. Now, in terms of the East End, and recently said, that is almost prehistoric now, the 1970s. And, um, you know, it was set up by gentlemen who, who came over and who just had to basically learn how to cook himself. A lot of uh, people came over, young men came over to Britain, um, leaving their wives and families behind. And they, they had to learn to look after themselves. There, there was a massive self-help network developing, in, particularly in the 50s and 60s, among the Bengali men. Basically, this chap found he could cook, <laughs> and the rest of the day is history. Now, was, was this the sort of food that he would have been eating at home or was this an anglicised version? No, a little bit of both, a little bit of both, because if you think about it, here we are on Fieldgate Street, how many thousands of people were working at the London Hospital? You had a ready-built mm. um, market, so he did things like um, sandwiches and whatever, but also, as well as providing people with what they wanted, he could then start um, getting them to experiment with the food that he, that he knew. So it's a, it's a, it's a two, two-way thing, two-way thing. And here we have also, at the same time I was... Discovering this area, we're outside now Tower House. Now, if you look at Tower House, it's a big red brick brooding presence, I suppose you could say. And when I came here, really for the first time to explore, maybe in the early 90s, something like that, um, all these windows, there's, if you can't picture everybody, it's a big building. Uh, it's how many stories? One, two, three, four, five, six. That's seven stories. And lots and lots of small, narrow windows. And what you've got to try and imagine is that when this was built in the early 20th century, 1902, each one of those windows represented a sort of a cubicle for a, a man who needed temporary accommodation. Oh, so it's, it's a, It was a Routon house. There were six Routon houses in London, and they were funded by Montague Corrie, who was the private secretary of Benjamin Disraeli. Now, Benjamin Disraeli was married, but he didn't have any children, and he, he nurtured Montague Corrie's career, you know, in a way you'd nurture your own child's career. And Montague Corrie, in turn, didn't have any children, and so he wasn't wealthy, but he had a bit of money. And he then designated some money to build properties that would provide temporary accommodation for those in need so often it was really for people who were itinerant you know they maybe they're in london on short term what we'd call today a short-term contract or whatever but mostly it was for, for the down and outs and at ground level there'd be a chapel there'd be a place where you could shower where you'd get new clothes where you would have your shoes done or maybe you'd get a new pair of boots you know and you'd there'd be a barber you know to neaten you up and then you'd pay pay your money and stay but it was only ever temporary you could never stay here long 
long term. Right, because the, the, the area was bedeviled by shoddy uh, attempts to cater for those types of people, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, there was also the Salvation Army refuge. There was lots down by Spitalfields. There was the uh, Sisters of Mercy, Providence Row. That was, this was 1902. Providence Row came to Spitalfields in 1866. You know, you had the um, Salvation Army um, uh, after that. And of the six Routon houses in London, there were just two that survived standing. The other, other four have been demolished. This one was transformed into um, rented accommodation. So these are flats. These are flats with underfloor, underground car parking facilities, I understand. The other one, the other one that's remaining is in Camden Town called Arlington House. And that still operates as housing for people who are in need on a temporary basis. So you stay there for a bit and then after a the designated period, maybe then social services will come and assist you. But thankfully, this building has survived because it really is reminiscent of where so many people, when they came to London, this is where they they had to stay. Stalin stayed here for a little while. George Orwell stayed here. You know, so it's it's, it's steeped steeped in history. And when, like I say, when I came in the in the nineties, all these windows were broken and they were wisps of this and that floating through through the air it was it was it was quite malevolent you know and the 90s is only just over 20 years ago so think things have changed and then next door oh just opposite you've got the LARC the London Action Resource Center so um, I, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to do banner-making workshops when you were going on a march. This is where you could come and learn how to m- make a visual. And like banner. everywhere in the East End, it's got uh, graffiti stick. by a stick on the yeah. front. If I could own a piece of street art, I would want it to be done by stick. I mean, I'm a great fan of street art. I think some of the artists are so, so talented. But there's something about stick's work. You know, you go away and try. Draw a circle, two blobs, a rectangle and some lines, and... S- you know, and he makes them happy, sad, old, young. You know, he's amazing. He's amazing. As we come down, we're going to end at two buildings, two more buildings that are in, in the book. Uh, Tower House is in, is in the book as well. Um, but this gives you the idea of the change. So as we walk down, can you see across the road over to your right the dome of the mosque, the East London Mosque with the crescent moon ahead? And there was a time when, as you walked down here, the big sort of pale, sort of, what did you say, orange brick building that you see opposite you, which is the Mariam Centre, that didn't exist. And you had these wonderful um, vistas you know, of, of, of skylines, which are just changing by the minute here at this end of Fieldgate Street. And as we walk down, you'll see, you'll see why. That's a curious expanse of wall with not a single feature on it. No windows, no nothing. Yeah. I don't know whether they're going to be building something else next, next door. Well, don't, we ought not to, t- to tell Stick yeah. about this. <laughs> yeah, actually, it'd be perfect. Oh, yes. Stick. In fact, Stick, are you listening? Are you listening? Are you in there? Are you there, Stick? I feel a phone would be more effective. <laughs> you mean you don't think Stick listens to Londonist out loud? Oh, no, I've done I it, bet I? he does. I bet Almost he does. Almost certainly glued to it right now. I'll give him a call. He will be, absolutely. So what is the Mariam Centre? So what you've got here is really, I think, one of the most lovely juxtapositions of buildings representing the history of this area. In, in many respects, it's sort of 
the the spot of the of of, of the area. And uh, what you've got is the Mariam Centre, which is relatively new, and it's a centre for women here at the East London Mosque. So prayer rooms for women, rooms where they can have meetings, education, uh, out, outreach uh, projects, and uh, ju- just for the women. And then if we walk down a little bit, still keep looking to your right-hand side, you've got um, a sign the entrance to the East London Mosque. And don't forget, you've got a big entrance on the main road as well, Whitechapel Road. The mosque itself, as a concept, dates back to 1910. So there's been a mosque in this area for a long time. And then it was on the commercial road. Um, had three buildings on commercial road. And in the 1970s, the properties were um, bought compulsorily by the local authority. And they were then, the Bengali community, Muslim community, were given land here on Fieldgate Street and Whitechapel Road. And so the mosque opened in 1985 as we know it today and if you'd come here a few years ago can you see opposite a little building and it says Fieldgate Street Great Synagogue if you'd come here not so long ago that synagogue was like detached it was like in splendid isolation and there was this photograph that so many of us took of the synagogue this tiny little synagogue with the mosque the dome of the mosque behind it was a lovely juxtaposition and then it was really tough for the little synagogue to keep to keep going and then literally I think just about 18 months ago or so um, it finally just gave out and the property was sold to the mosque because what you've now got is the mosque gradually grew and grew next door to it the London Muslim Centre for Education there's a funeral parlour here in fact just across the road you can see a hearse in the Muslim community they have to be buried quite soon after death the same as in the Jewish community so you do actually see a lot of um, things linked to funerals. Actually, there's so, several here. Yes, because it's, it's a funeral... What do you call them? Uh, directors? Funeral directors, mm. yes, thank you. Now, the synagogue is now owned by the mosque, the building. The synagogue itself was founded in 1899. Or 56-59. Yes, absolutely. But the building itself doesn't date from there. It was one of the synagogues, there were many, that were uh, badly damaged during the Second World War. So what you've actually got is a building that dates from the 1950s. So architecturally, quite difficult to, to ask for it to be preserved because on the exterior isn't isn't ornate in any way. Inside the synagogue is lovely. It's very homely, you know, with still the donation boards around the ladies' gallery and things like that. And the, the mosque presently has said that the building will be retained mainly for multi-faith services and things like that. But the story at the moment is that the, the memory of the synagogue being there, that frontage with the naming and everything, will be retained, which I think is... It's nice because that's part and parcel of the history of the area. The reason it's called Fieldgate Street Great Synagogue, even though it was never that large, is because there was at a time about three synagogues on this street and it was the largest. <laughs> so, so you get the idea of how small the other ones were. And in fact, Tyabs, the restaurant that I showed you before, uh, one of the synagogues that used to be a synagogue in the back of, of, of one of the buildings that's now Tyabs, which again gives you an idea of how small some of those places for prayer in the Jewish community were. And it really says a lot, doesn't it, the, these particular changes of usage say a lot about the evolution of the area. Absolutely, and I think that's the glory. That's the glory of this area. Whatever comes its way, it em- it embraces it. And you know, the buildings. We've walked a very small area, and each and every one of the buildings has got, I think, a fascinating tale to tell, and probably will continue to have fascinating 
fascinating tales uh, to tell. You love it when you can stand on one spot and just see all your different architectures. And if you just stand here, you've got your 1950s rebuild for Fieldgate Street Synagogue. You've got the East London Mosque in all its new incarnations with the Marion Centre. You've got that magnificent red brick edifice of Tower House. And then you can see all the way down, sort of looming you know, at the, at the end of this ravine, uh, the, the blue aqua glass of the, um, the Royal London Hospital. It's rather quite stupendous, isn't it? It is indeed. And it's sadly we must come to a close uh, for our, what has been a two-week tour of this small part of the East End. And, of course, it's based on a book all about architecture. How many stories do you tell in the book? Or We've got 50. Yeah, Whitechapel in 50 buildings. So, yes, with, with my lovely, lovely collaborator, Louis, Louis Burke, who's a, um, a teacher, he's an educator. He actually works at Swanley School in, White, in Whitechapel. And he... He grew to love Whitechapel um, walking to work, and you know, because often he came to work quite early, and he saw buildings in different lights and lovely angles. And he he started to put together a portfolio of photographs, and then we met uh, actually at Brady Street Cemetery. Curiously enough, we met at a cemetery, and um, I've been exploring the streets, but from my angle, the social history angle, and um, and so we. Uh, we put together the book. <laughs> and of course, Louis, we wish you well. He, he would be here with us today, were he not poorly. Yes, get well, Louis. As I'm sure people will want to lay their mitts on a copy of the book, where can they do that? Uh, um, lots of East End bookshops. So if you know Brick Lane Bookshop, Newham Bookshop, and things like that. And yeah, those, those are the best places. Also the A Word, of course. And uh, also if you want to contact myself or Louis through our websites, we'll gladly send you a signed copy. And the websites are? GoLondonTours.com, LouisBurke.com. Well, uh, for, for these two weeks, Rachel Koski, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. My heart aches for some far-off plays. No that's all for this week my thanks for this week to Rachel Kolsky thanks to to Louis Burke and Bernie Barclay theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea I'm N. Quentin Wolfe flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.